Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone into Garden of Doom. And this week we are rejoined by one of our favorite guests. He's only been on once before, but I'm sort of a fan. And his name is Reverend Jim Willis. How are you, Jim? Real good, real good, Jeff. Thank you. Good. That's terrific. He's coming to us from, I believe, uh, undisclosed location somewhere in the American <laughs> Southeast, in the in the, in the in the Blue Mountains or the Shenandoah Mountains. Is that what they're called? No, down there? It, well, it's it's in South Carolina along the Savannah River. Oh, I did, I got it all wrong. You're from much further east. Um, all right. Well, very good. So he's he's disclosed the location, sort of. Um, uh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, now. It's Reverend Jim Willis. He was a member of the clergy for something like four decades. Uh, he's now retired. He's a prolific writer. He's written about 14 or 15 books. He's got a couple coming up. He was on this show once before, uh, and it was we talked about a bunch of stuff, but most of it's centered around his book called Censoring God, which is a wonderful book and a really easy read. And if you like Von Danigan, uh, and, and books like that, but you also uh, like it to go a little bit further, maybe be a little bit easier to read with less question marks. Uh, Censoring God is for you. Um, so, uh, and I've uh, he also wrote literally an encyclopedia on religion called the Religion Book. Um, so, and I have it, and you can get this big, really an encyclopedia type book for like twenty bucks on Amazon. Uh, and and he's written lots of stuff that are, that you would not normally associate with a member of the uh, clergy. And he told his story in the last show, so I would certainly recommend that you listen to um, the prior episode to get background on Jim, and really to listen to that episode. 
Um, but yeah, uh, if you could just tell the folks a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, sure. I, yeah, I was in the clergy for 40 years, but besides that, I was also, uh, uh, well, I've been a writer for the last 10 or 12 since I retired from the active clergy. Um, 20 books now. And um, if, if, when you talked about the religion book for 20 bucks, I, I happened to see a copy of it the other day on the uh, <laughs> on Amazon for a dollar fifty. Wow! That really <laughs> that's really a compliment to an author, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I've been a musician my whole life. Matter of fact, that was my first career. And uh, I also did a lot of part-time carpentry, so I am actually living in a house that I built myself. And wow. my daughter, Jan, who is my tech guru, lives next door in a house that I built for her. And we live out in the middle of the woods. Uh, days and weeks go by sometimes without seeing anybody, unless we go outside the gates and go to the store. I guess Hermit, Hermit Jim from South Carolina or something like that. But I must say it's a... Uh, when I look at the news and see what's going on out there in the world, uh, the woods looks, woods looks better to me every day. Yeah, sure. Enjoy the peace. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, it's Reverend Jim Williams, but but you've been in a bunch of different ministries, as I recall. Yeah. 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 I was I was a, a pastor of uh, mostly small churches for, for 40 years from uh, Massachusetts to Arizona to Florida, where I finally wound up. Uh, matter of fact, I, I guess it was in my genes or something else, because uh, when I retired out here to South Carolina, I came out here with an agenda. You know, most uh, most clergy, when they retire, they always figure they, they'll, you know, do some part-time preaching on Sunday and filling in for people who, who you know, filling in for ministers who were sick or on vacation or something like that. But I came out here with a, with, with a real agenda, because... Um, when, when you're in the clergy, you always think that uh, most of us joined when we were young because we wanted a spiritual family around us. We wanted uh, somebody we could, you know, who, you know a, a community of people that we could raise the deep questions: Who am I? Who or what is God? And all that kind of thing. And when you actually get to be the pastor of a church, you discover it's not like that at all. Uh, matter of fact. Um, it's more like a business than anything else, and you're always concerned about the next church service, the next meeting, the next seminar, the next social event, uh, the, the next activity. And 40 years goes by real quick like that, and you realize you haven't really done what you set out to do. So when I retired, it was with an agenda. I wanted to experience this whole spirituality that I've been preaching about for 40 years and felt that I was preaching about rather than experiencing it. And so I came out here and I even had a Bible verse in mind. Uh, the verse that I was thinking of was it took place out of the Genesis, uh, a story of Jacob and Esau, uh, two brothers. And uh, when Jacob stole Esau's birthright, he had to flee for his life up into uh, what we now call Turkey or Anatolia, where the home country came from, where Abraham came from and all that. And uh, after years up there, he came back down and he was about to make uh, make up with his brother finally. And on the night before the meeting, he had no idea what was going to happen, whether his brother was still going to be angry or would forgive him or what. And uh, he was pacing up and down like most of us do. And uh, lo and behold, it says uh, a man appeared to him and they fought together 
all night long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a strange verse. And Jacob, when the dawn broke and the sun came up over the river, he realized that he was fighting with God. And he said the great words, I will not let you go until you bless me. And that was the verse that was in my mind when I came up here to live in, uh, in the woods. I came up to go on a retreat for about a year, and I was just going to devote that year to getting to, well, wrestling with God. I, I was saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. And, uh, well, that was I was going to spend a year. So far, it's been almost 14 uh, and, uh, lo and behold, God answered my prayer, not in a way that I expected. I, um, I did find that spirituality I was looking for, but it wasn't really within the Christian context. I guess that wouldn't have worked with me. It was much more in the uh, shamanic tradition or the nature religion. Maybe you can say the pagan thing, but that, that thing, I will not let you go until you bless me. That was the thing. I, but when I talked about that being in my DNA, uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to go to, to Cornwall and uh, do a seminar there for a wonderful group of people um, on the roots of, of religion in the world today, the modern religion, the big, the big five religions in the world today. And uh, so I went over there and had a wonderful seminar, one wonderful group with some great people. But then afterwards, I had to go up to this little town called Fenny Compton, where my ancestors preached. It was up northwest of London. My ancestors preached up there, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and uh, and his family. They were members of the Church of England, and he preached in this little stone church in Fenny Compton that still stands. And uh, I had to go up and see it. So I I went up and I met the historian of the town and she took me inside and I was able to stand in the pulpit where my great ancestor preached. And while I was up there, um, I had an experience I will never forget because I looked at the stained glass window in the wall that uh, only he could see from the pulpit really well. He had to be in a certain position to see the, the subject of it. And lo and behold, the stained glass window depicted Jacob wrestling with God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Mm-hmm. Now, how how that spiritual gene passed down through all the generations of Willis's to me, and uh, that was the one verse that was right here. So I kind of feel like I, uh, I was, uh, well, hair just stood up on the back of my neck. It really did. I, I, I felt uh, somehow that uh, many, many generations of Willis's had been guided and uh, I was just following in line. It gave me a sense that probably all of us are much more guided and directed than we like to think we are sometimes. Well, that, that, that whole uh, discourse led, led to a, so many different doors that we can go down, but we can't go down too many of them. But one I have to, I just want to make sure that I understand correctly. The, now, it, is it true that that story of Jacob wrestling with, with God is where the word Israel came from, that Israel means yes. to wrestle with, and El is the one. That's right. That's right. Uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means he wrestles with the, the, the one, the I am, the God. Yeah. Okay, excellent. So, all right, so I got so I get my first gold star. Um, <laughs> but actually, the story is a perfect sort of segue into what is going to be a large topic today. And this is, it, 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 I asked Jim to talk about a couple of mythologies, a couple of pantheons, that are out there, but I haven't been able to find too many, you know, people who with expertise on it. So why not 
talk to the guy who wrote the religion book, the actual religion book, which I'm showing here on a camera, but uh, obviously this is an audio. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, Canaanite. We're going to talk about Babylonian and Sumerian, uh, which probably starts in Anatolia. We're not going to go exactly in alphabetical order, but it sort of works out almost that way anyhow. But I, I'm going to try to do the primitive persons, meaning intellectually schooled in this area, historical timeline, and see if I have it right. Because it's always sort of confused me, and I'm not going to ask Jim to clarify it and try to correct uh, anything, any minor stuff, but to see if I'm basically right. So if we go by biblical history, and we're going to go and we're going to do that right now for the purposes just of this, this discussion, world's about 6,000 years old. Um, and if, and basically day one starts with the word, uh, and you know, by day six, you have Adam and Eve somewhere in there. You might've had Lilith where I, I guess if, if divorce is not approved by a lot of religion, certainly annulment is, cause if you believe, uh, in Lilith and then God certainly let that, that marriage be, uh, null and void pretty darn quickly. It took less than a day to say, yep, this hasn't working out. Um, day six, we have our uh, day of rest, of course. And then we sort of have the begetting and the begetting. And somewhere in there you have Cain and Abel, and they have their dispute. Cain goes to a land that has a name in the east with goat herders that already exist. Um, they, there's a replacement child for Abel named Seth. And through that, you have a, a few other kids that the, 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 you come to... Enoch, who had Methuselah, who had Lamech, who had Noah. Somewhere in this timeline, all the world went bad according to God, whether it was because of the giants that were evil, whether it was because the sons of God, the angels, uh, had uh, intercourse and copulated with the daughters of Adam and created the giants and the Nephilim, or whether they, it was two different things, giants and Nephilim, or some combination of the two, uh, or just humanity being depraved, but God wiped out everyone at this point, except Noah and his family. Uh, and by the way, if this is all sounds all like all men except for Eve and maybe Lilith, um, that's because my understanding from my yeshiva scholars is that every time a boy was born, they were basically triplets. They would, they would be two twin daughters as well. So yeah, it was incest, but there weren't any choices. Um, so, so it, you know, it, anyway, so Noah and his family and, you know, the animals, they, they lived somehow, though, although everyone was destroyed, some of the giants managed not to be because there were giants still around somewhere. They play some roles with Nimrod and Babel and things like that. But that's not really the important thing for the moment. Noah had kids and we get some name repeating if, I, if I'm not incorrect. He had a cane, either his child or a grandchild. And from Noah, from Cain, people followed Cain, and those became the Canaanites. One was named Ham. Those, I guess they went to Africa, and they were called the Hamites. And I think there were some others, maybe Seth and other kids. And from there, I think we get our, we get led to Abraham and, and others. So this is sort of the, the timeline, which, you know, obviously Abraham's the covenant. And I'm not sure what the Jewish New Year is up to it, but it's around 57, 5,800, so somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so all of what I just said happened in about 120 or 130 years, um, which is, you know, 
I guess a fairly short time, but but there it is. Do I have that sort of right? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lilith is not in the Bible at all. That's a that's an extra biblical thing. Uh, it comes from the, uh, the the Jewish rabbis later. Uh, and in terms of the uh, uh, the 150 years part, uh, it's actually about 2,000 years from the uh, beginning until Abraham came and then 2000 years from Abraham to us. Um, so that's what, that's what the, the Bible dates are now. Uh, of course, all that history and, and, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And uh, one of his uh, grandsons was named Canaan, or we call it Canaan, the, who was supposedly the founder of the Canaanites. And um, this all happened uh, in about 11 chapters <laughs> in the Bible. Uh, Bishop Usher, uh, back in the Middle Ages, had it all figured out. He used all the dates in the Bible, literally, and he discovered that the earth was created in October uh, 4004 B.C. Uh, at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. So oh, okay. <laughs> he, got, he got all that from the Bible. Uh, now, that's the Bible story. Uh, does it agree with anything that the archaeologists or the geologists or the anthropologists say? No, no, it doesn't agree with any of that. And so there's many different ways to um, to interpret interpret all that. But uh, yeah, you had the you had the basic story right, and it's it's a uh, uh, and it's all covered so fast, eleven chapters, and it's done. Then you start with Abraham, and away we go. Well, I got I got 130 versus 2,000 pretty wrong. I'm still not sure I understand it, but that's that's a different. My education that is is for a different time. I I sort of just wanted us to get from where Noah was, which is probably somewhere in Turkey, and that's sort of where yeah, Abraham yeah. was, which then yeah, was in Turkey. It was Anatolia, and where the word Canaan comes from, and from and from here, it sounds like I got that close enough to being right. And from there, we turn to sure. our expert. So, oh, oh, I don't know about that, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So much, so much of this took place in uh, ancient Anatolia, what we call today is Turkey. Um, for years, uh, the anthropologists were convinced that our civilization began about six thousand years ago, maybe eight thousand years ago, down in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia just means the land between the rivers, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And uh, the Sumerians were considered to be the start of uh, the beginning of agriculture and the beginning of cities. And uh, that was all cut and dried. Everybody just accepted that. The first nation, the first uh, state, a city that was built probably was um, uh, a city by the name of Ur. Uh, as a matter of fact, some people even had Abraham being born there. They called it Ur of the Chaldees. I don't think he was. I think he was, if there was an Abraham, I think he was probably born up in Anatolia. But that was all cut and dry for about 6,000 years. And then came the discovery of Gobekli Tepe and everything changed. Because Gobekli Tepe uh, was built at least 5,000, maybe 6,000 years before any of this. And lo and behold, from genetic studies of uh, plants as well as people, we, we learned that agriculture was not developed down in Mesopotamia. It was developed up in uh, in Turkey and Anatolia at the same time as Gobekli Tepe and Karahan Tepe. So that's that's where our civilization really began. Now, to, in order to picture this, you've got to picture what they call the, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, on the right 
in the east, it starts down in Mesopotamia right now where the, the Persian Gulf is between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And you can draw this crescent-shaped moon that goes up to the Tigris and the Euphrates until it comes uh, to uh, the birthplace of the four rivers that theoretically were, that's where the Garden of Eden was. And that's not too far from Gobekli Tepe. And then you consider, you can continue that crescent down to the Mediterranean, down into uh, Canaan, or what is present-day Israel. And that fertile crescent, uh, we always get the idea that when people move from one to the other, they just move straight from, say, Jerusalem to Babylon. Well, you didn't. You followed the rivers north around this fertile crescent and back down again. So here you've got uh, Gobekli Tepe, Anatolia, really, up at the top of this fertile crescent with rivers flowing down to the east and the south, uh, eventually into the Sumerian uh, cultures, the Mesopotamian cultures. And then you've got other routes going down to the Mediterranean, heading down west and south, down to uh, Canaan, and eventually across the Sinai into Egypt. And so it's probably much more realistic to think that our civilization began not 6,000 years ago in Sumer, but uh, closer to 10,000, 800, 11,000 years ago uh, up in Anatolia, in Gobekli Tepe, which is fascinating because that's also theoretically where the Muslims insisted that that's the birthplace of Abraham. It's also the birthplace of agriculture. And of course, the Bible talks about Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain was the agriculturalist mm -hmm. who won the battle by killing his herder, uh, son or uh, brother Abel, and that probably happened historically. I mean, not not the two people, but I mean the agricultural uh, civilization, which is symbolized by Cain, destroyed the hunter-gatherer herder uh, civilizations that were built, uh, you know, represented by Abel. But also up in that same neck of the woods, not far from Gobekli Tepe, is uh, uh, the birthplace of the, Garden of the Garden of Eden, if there was ever was such a thing. It's where the four rivers spring out, and two of them are, rise up from the same mountains, Tigris and Euphrates. And then it's also not far from uh, Mount Ararat, where Noah's Ark was said to have landed. So I think we can probably trace not only the Sumerian uh, culture, but also the Egyptian and the Canaanite culture, um, maybe they didn't rise independently. Maybe they were both influenced by what was going on 11,800 years ago up in Gobekli Tepe. Now, of course, if you want to have some real fun, you can say, well, what about Gobekli Tepe? Uh, uh, agriculture up in Anatolia came very quickly. How did a bunch of hunter-gatherers learn how to do that? Well, maybe they were influenced by somebody in turn. And the influence now is that, uh, the understanding now is that perhaps um, they were in turn jump-started by a higher civilization that was destroyed during a, uh, the global uh, cataclysm, which probably set off the Younger Dryas uh, Ice Age. Now, we're getting really big time scopes here. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but right. uh, does, does that make sense so far? Yeah, it certainly makes sense, but I think you're right. It is probably a good place to cut off because that's a, that's a, those are, all different shows and, and, yeah. and I probably co covered parts of them in different, you know, in different episodes. And if you ever want to, you have an open invitation to over, always come oh, back. Great. In fact, great. you can take Thank over you, the man. show. It'll probably do better. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> just keep me on as a co-host uh, or a mascot, something. Um, but yeah, so, so we, we, well, yeah, let's just, you know, um, 
can can we go down river to Sumer first? Sure, and, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, let's just let's just say, for the sake of argument, and uh, I'd, I'd love to say this as if I have all this archaeological evidence. Oh wait, it, for one it, second, can we can we talk a little bit though about Ingo Black, uh, Gobekli Tepe, and yeah, Tara, sure, that, sure. on some of the. Uh, not the capstones. What are the what are the the lintel stones? What are the the side stones? The ones. Oh, the big T, the big T shaped pillars. Yeah, they go back they tepe. Yeah. They have they have a lot of imagery carved into them yeah. that, that matches yeah. a lot of different gods and 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 yes. myths from a bunch of different cultures. So it's it, it's almost between the age and the and the the differentiation on on the on the artwork there. It's yeah. almost inevitable that, at least for the modern time, that almost objectively, almost objectively, that a lot of different mythologies stemmed straight from there. I think so. I think you're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, Sumer was settled first between, oh, say, 4500 and, uh, uh, say, 4000 BCE. Uh, but Sumer, down in Mesopotamia, uh, was settled by a non-Semitic people. Uh, who did not speak the Sumerian language. The very first thing we had, they didn't speak Sumerian. Uh, that developed. These people who settled who settled, uh, settled down in the Mesopotamia region were called Proto-Euphradians or Ubaidians from the village uh, Al-Ubaid, where their remains were first discovered. And they were the ones that in Sumeria brought agriculture, and trade and industries like weaving and leatherwork and metalwork, masonry and pottery. These are all the symbols of civilization. This is what marks the civilization. So you say, well, where did these people come from? Well, probably Anatolia. It was right after the last big ice age. And as you say, up in Gobekli Tepe, there was a very sophisticated mythology going up there. So obviously, these people up in Anatolia were not simple hunter-gatherers uh, who just moved from place to place. Well, down in Samaria, uh, within a matter of a couple of thousand years, they had invented the wheel. Uh, they had produced the first written language that we know about. They had mastered sailboats and uh, developed agriculture, and they had advanced irrigation systems. Uh, they even built what some consider to be the first city, although people in India and China were, would probably argue with that. But the oldest uh, city in Samaria, down in between the Mesopotamia, the uh, Tigris and Euphrates, was probably uh, Urek, but its capital was Eridu, and it's said to have been the place. This is fascinating. Now, it was said to have been the place where the gods first gave humans the gifts necessary to establish the first civilization. Now, uh, if the Sumerians came, I mean, if the Anatolians came down the river and uh, brought with them that mythology and all those uh, inventions of uh, basically new civilization, obviously within a thousand years or so, they were remembered no more as uh, people. They were elevated to gods. Now, they, had become, they had become mythological. Uh, and uh, if that's the case, then the real civilization uh, first started, makes marks its location where the modern world begins is up in Anatolia, spreading southeast down to Samaria. And you might say, well, how do we know all this? Well, <laughs> it gets a little complicated. But uh, basically through a couple of uh, texts that have been discovered, one of them is called the Eridu Genesis. Uh, it's an ancient, ancient Sumerian epic, uh, probably 
know, maybe even 6,000 years old. And it's concerned with the creation of the world and uh, tells about the building of cities and the great flood that destroyed the world. And according to the epic, uh, after the universe was created out of the, uh, the primeval sea and the gods uh, had arrived, the deities fashioned men from, from clay to cultivate the ground and to care for flocks and perpetuate the worship of the gods. And this was the book that said that uh, God determined to destroy mankind with a great flood. Uh, Enki was the, uh, the god, the, he was he was the good god versus his half-brother Enlil. Uh, Enki, the good god, uh, heard about Enlil's plan to destroy the earth with a flood, so he revealed it to uh, Atnapishtam, or Ziusudra, uh, as they said in, in uh, Sumerian. And uh, it turned out that uh, Atnapishtam built a huge boat in which he successfully rode out the flood. Is this story sounding a little familiar? Just a <laughs> it's bit. The same, the same story as Noah. And afterwards, he was given uh, mortality, uh, immortality. But the uh, the the other book, the other text that we have, uh, is from uh, a man by the name of Berossus, who was uh, in the Babylonian era. He followed the Sumerian, but he uh, remembered the Sumerian myths and wrote three books. Uh, in the first one. Uh, I love this story. It's full of ideas. Uh, uh, a, a god by the name of Oannes, who was half fish, half man, uh, came ashore in uh, in Babylonia at a time when men still lived, as he said, like the wild beasts. And uh, Oannes taught them essentials of civilization. He taught them how to write and the arts and law and agriculture and surveying and architecture. I, I love this because this Oannes was supposed to have been half man and half fish, and it's the very same imagery that we get out of the early Mayan culture and the early Olmec culture. And, uh, and the Dogons. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, same thing. Right, right, exactly. Uh, first, Barossus says uh, this Oannes, his, his whole body was like a fish, and he had a under a fish's head, he had another head, and also feet below, similar to that of a man, subjoined so to the fish's tail. It's almost like a, a shamanic figure wearing this robe of some kind, or this decorative uh, garment. And it said his voice was uh, articulate and human, and the representation of him is preserved even to this day. Well, we got a lot of statues around the world, statues around the world. It said when the sun set, it was the custom of Oannes to plunge back into the sea and abide all night in the deep because he was amphibious. And he said he gave them insight into letters and sciences and every kind of art. He taught them to construct houses, to found temples, to compile laws. Interestingly, again, Gobekli Tepe was said to be the first temple that was ever built. Uh, he brought that down to him. He explained to them the principles of geometry and he made them distinguish the different seeds of the earth and showed them how to collect fruits and, and in short agriculture and he instructed them in everything which he could tend to soften soften manners and human humanize mankind didn't do a very good job in that regard <laughs> well we don't really know how bad we were before yeah like, oh, can you imagine if it was actually worse wow <laughs> So I don't know if you want to sum this whole thing up, you know, uh, the gods of, of Sumer, 
um, probably inherited from Anatolia. We don't know for sure, but it certainly seems to be that way. So who were they? Well, they were either completely mythological, just made up, or they were immigrants from somewhere else, and then later generations mythologized them. Uh, you know, the Sumerians were they were brilliant people. They came up with all the hallmarks of what we call civilization. They came up with, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, <laughs> and all of that. So, I don't know. When they say they were given these gifts in the beginning, rather than take the natural, prideful way of saying we invented them, they said we were given them in the beginning by someone they called by name and described in great detail. To me, it, it seems like we just kind of have to take them at their word a little bit. Uh, makes sense anyway. So where might these gods have come from? Well, as we said, probably upriver from from uh, uh, Anatolia. If we follow the Tigris and Euphrates upstream, we come to um, right near Gobekli Tepe, where the first temple was built, and was where, as you pointed out, all those images show up on the uh, the T-shaped pillars. And um, as we said earlier, nearby stands the traditional location of the, the Garden of Eden and uh, a city, perhaps, uh, Karahan Tepe. It was just discovered. It's less than a couple of years old. And it seems to be kind of a, a, a city, whereas Gobekli Tepe is more of a temple. But it, you know, it, it's interesting that when it, it said when Cain killed his brother Abel, he went out and built a city. Uh, you got to say, did Cain or the people that he represents in mythology, did they move down the river and uh, build that city called Urek? Well that, well, that is much closer to the, you know, I don't want to get into the woo-woo too much, uh, but that's a lot like the Masonic legend, is that all good things yeah. came from Pan. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that, well, I never, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. That's excellent, yeah. But I don't uh, A uh, new book coming, I, I, I feel it, I see it. <laughs> You said, you know, we're asking all the questions, so all the question marks. Could it be, yeah. as uh, Von Daniken loves to say, mm -hmm. that uh, this civilization of Sumer was uh, peopled by uh, a possible civilization that was uh, destroyed by a great cataclysm that was recognized as a of great worldwide flood? Maybe it was just a local flood that felt like a world sure. but if you put it all together it, it starts to form a good picture they, they seem to say that a group of uh, gods and we'll put the name in parenthesis who might very well have been a remnant of, uh, of a civilization that was advanced enough to appear well beyond the capabilities of hunter gatherers for instance existed between the tigris and the euphrates river did they arrive suddenly on the scene and, and, and jumpstart the locals and start a civilization that would endure while keeping alive the, the memories of their founders who were eventually seen as gods? And who were these people? Where did they come from? We, we simply don't know. I, I like the idea that they were survivors from a worldwide catastrophe that concluded with the meltdown uh, following the end of the Younger Dryas Ice Age that the dates certainly match perfectly. Um, Gobekli Tepe suddenly springs up from the ground right after the Younger Dryas in a very short time. Uh, Sumer and Egypt soon followed. Uh, uh, going down the rivers, you hit Sumer, and going down the other way toward the Mediterranean, you hit Egypt. But 
the, the neat thing, the thing that really gets to me and that I really love to think about is that if you take the myths seriously, um, the gods who taught the ancient Sumerians the arts of civilization, they were really folks from a forgotten past. We don't know anything about it. It's been obliterated. And if so, considering our civilization began there in, in, in Sumer, that area, we owe them the world. The whole, the whole world that we inherited. They were our mothers and fathers. We, we are who we are today because of them. And um, I think that makes them extremely important. And I just don't understand why we don't um, teach this stuff more in, in, in school because we want to know who we are and where we came from. Well, that could very well be it. Yeah, that's, that is for sure. So without the who's, and yes, they could be from an ancient civilization. Maybe they were gods. Maybe they were aliens. I, I, you know, that's my favorite, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. There's nothing, you know, that could be, it's a real, very real possibility. Uh, ever since uh, Sitchin came along and said the word Anunnaki uh, means, uh, um, you know, those who from heaven above came down, right. uh, which is a whole other, come to think of it, I, <laughs> I, we talked about Sumer. Can I, can I uh, take off and rant just a little more? You can do uh, it ever uh, you like, yes. <laughs> Uh, one of the great things that followed Sumerian was the whole Babylonian culture uh, that superseded the Sumerians. And uh, back in uh, 1853, uh, Hormuzad Rassam, uh, he discovered fragments of an ancient Sumerian text, which is now considered to be the first great work of literature our civilization ever produced. And it was translated in eight in 1870 by a, a George Smith. And uh, although it was known by serious Mesopotamia scholars far and wide as the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, it was generally consigned to oblivion in the popular press. It took Star Trek to open our minds and open people's eyes up to uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, in episode, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation, uh, in the fifth season, the second episode, uh, entitled Darmok, uh, Patrick Stewart's character, Captain Picard, quoted the lines, He who was my companion through adventure and hardship is gone forever. And as soon as you heard Captain Picard say it, everybody went to the internet and began to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> they wanted to learn more about Gilgamesh, the king of Uruk, that poor, first Enkidu. <laughs> poor Enkidu killed by that mean giant. Yeah, 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 Enkidu uh, going against Gilgamesh, the wild man who was created by the gods. And uh, the Epic of but the Epic of Gilgamesh did contain a kind of a, I, I like to call it a hidden time bomb that would explore, uh, explode maybe 150 years later because the Epic of Gilgamesh told of seven judges of hell who set the land aflame in advance of the great flood. And those seven judges of hell were called the Anunnaki. And uh, Zachariah Sitchin picked that up and ran with it. And mm -hmm. he believed that the Anunnaki were aliens. And um, it didn't harmony that uh, four years before the Gilgamesh discovery, uh, uh, Austin Henry Layard had discovered uh, hidden away in the library of Ashburnipal, 
uh, in what is now Morsal in Iraq, uh, fragments of a 3,800-year-old manuscript containing a Babylonian creation epic called the Enuma Elish. And 27 years later, it was published by the same guy who published the Epic of Gilgamesh, George Smith. And it told the story of the god Marduk, who created humans as a slave race in order to serve the gods and to oversee the workforce. He created a team of, uh, according to him, 600 watchers or holy ones who were also called Anunnaki. Mm -hmm. And 300 of them were supposed to serve in heaven and 300 on earth. And Marduk was the son of the god named uh, either sometimes Enki, sometimes Ea, or the god of the waters. Here's where the flood starts coming in. But, of course, this made the case of the Anunnaki more confusing. Were there seven of them, or were there 600? And Some even translated it 50 or 900. And, and what did they do? This is the part that really gets me. Right out of the Sumerian legend, the Anunnaki is a generic term, meaning gods or angels of heaven and earth, or according to Sitchin, those who came down. And... Uh, Little did Christians know, most Christians today don't even realize, uh, they were called Anunnaki or Watchers and Holy Ones. And there's a well-known hymn. You go to any church, any Christian church, or Catholic church, or Protestant church, in the in the country today, and you look in their hymn book and you'll find a hymn called Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, written by uh, Athelstan Riley. And... Uh, he considered them to be ranks of angels, but no, it was the came right out of the Siberian epic. So uh, even today, most Christians don't realize every time they sing the hymn, He Watchers and He Holy Ones, which is one of my favorite hymns, they are honoring the Anunnaki of the Anuma Elish when they sing it. I just find that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of things that, that are sort of canon in Christianity that, yeah. frankly, are not in, in any part of the Bible whatsoever. They're all, all, yeah. all over the place. I mean, just go into YouTube and you can you can look up the uh, a show on the seven princes of hell. You can look up all these things on the Watchers and and the, the, the uh, war between angels, uh, you know, and, and Lucifer and God. And none of that's in the Bible. Not 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 yeah. even not even a little bit. The word the word Satan, I think, only appears three times in the Old Testament. And it's not as the devil. It's a, basically a, a, an angel of sorts doing God's bidding, sort yeah, of as yes. a, the accuser or the or the the, the yeah, adversary. That's right. That's right. The, the, the word uh, Hebrew word Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who's supposed to watch and <laughs> see yeah. what's happening. He's, he, he's like t constantly testing Job in a in a horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible way. Um, oh, terrible. But uh, the, yeah, but that, that that yeah, but there there is a lot of overlap, which is I mean so much fun and so fertile, and it's over so many different time periods that you know, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, this is one of those I call hollow glass, you know, hollow mirrors where you, you never know where something exactly. begins or ends. So for our purposes, let's let's start with I guess the Sumerian panoply. So who, who's their king of the gods or queen of the gods if if they were a matriarchal? Well, it's it's. You know, there's a lot of difference of opinion. There's a bunch of them that show up over and over again. Um, you know, the, the two that we have to really remember, I think, more than anybody else are uh, Enlil and Enki. And um, uh, Enki was, and, and his sister Nenki, uh, they were the what we 
might refer to as the, the good gods. They were on our side. And the uh, and Enlil was the one who wanted the slave race. And um, uh, Sitchin goes on to say that Enlil was actually an alien from the planet Nibiru and uh, who wanted to mine uh, gold because his home planet needed it to see their atmosphere to increase and stay alive. But Enlil was just interested in having this um, uh, the slave race who would basically mine the earth. And Enki was the one who said, we can't do that to him. We've created him. We've uh, genetically engineered them uh, or created them, however you want to say it. And uh, it just, we just wouldn't be fair to do that. But Enlil was the one who wanted to destroy the whole world with a flood and get rid of the, um, the, the human race because Enki had well, basically made us human. Uh, some people say if, if he's an alien, he did it by genetic engineering. If he was a spirit being, um, he did it by perhaps seeing that the sons of God, like Enki, saw that the daughters of men were fair and actually mated with them. Uh, I don't know how the mechanics would work when it comes to having sex with an angel, but, you know, there you go. Um, the, the, the interesting thing about this, I mean, we, we followed it from Anatolia down to the south and the east to the Mesopotamia. If we take it from Anatolia and go west toward the Mediterranean down into Canaan, uh, we get a whole different uh, concept of the gods. Down there, um, El is the creator god and his consort, Asherah. Uh, and then there was the storm god, Baal, and his sister, Annette, who was a goddess of uh, hunting and warfare. And um, El, the chief god of the pantheon, is identified in Canaanite ours as a seated male figure with his arms raised as if about to give a, a, a blessing. Um, the trouble is that most of us, when you look at Canaanite gods, always see them as bad guys because uh, what we know about them, if it comes from the Bible, the Bible definitely says the Canaanites were supposed to be destroyed by the uh, Israelites. And uh, it's funny because Yahweh, for instance, Y-H-V-H, or Jehovah, sometimes it's translated, um, is supposed to be the god of the Israelites, but actually he was first a, uh, a, a god of the Canaanites. He was the uh, Canaanite god of metallurgists. And uh, the Canaanites had a whole bunch of polytheistic gods, uh, household gods and goddesses, and they were called the Elohim, which in the Old Testament is also a name for God. Right. So, yeah, go ahead, I'm saying. I, know, though, I mean, I think one of the things about the Canaanite uh, mythology or panoply pantheon that fascinates me so much is that they, okay, most gods look elegant. The Egyptian gods, even though they're animals, they, they look beautiful. They're, they're ornamented, they're well-dressed, they all have accoutrement, they, they look elegant. Uh, Enki and Enlil, whatever they look like, whether they look elves or humanish or, you know, they're, they're, they're in a society. The Greek gods were humans the even the norse gods yeah. were were humanoids but the 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 canaanite gods they weren't they they, they, they the baal was a giant black goat with you know with yeah. muscle you know they they all they looked like where the wild things were they they looked like monsters they didn't you know in our image of of god and gods it is largely human or at least elegant beautiful you know humanoid anthropomorphized 
uh, humans like Quetzalcoatl may be the closest, but even that it was sort of like a technicolor dream coat of, yeah, of feathers yeah, yeah, and yeah. white light and all that. But the Canaanite gods, no, they're like primordial. They're they're yeah. they're they're more uh, they feel more ancient, more close to the to our proto humans, despite the fact that the, the, their properties are probably no different than any other pantheon period, or you know neither yeah. worse nor better. You know, just more or less the same and as you pointed out some things are barred el is barred yeah. elohim is barred yeah. yahweh jehovah borrowed uh, yeah yeah you know, you know it, it, it it's really interesting to me that to, to see how this comes because much of what we know what we, we think we know about the canaanite gods comes from the bible and of course you know the history is written by the winners mm -hmm. and so the bible tells us one story but we have to really question what the Bible says because um, the Bible said, for instance, that the Israelites came in and destroyed all the Canaanites. But DNA says, no, they didn't. Um, the Canaanites uh, had the same, pretty much the same DNA before the Israelites as they do now. So you begin to think that, well, maybe that didn't happen. And then we find all other kinds of DNA that Canaanites built cities all up and down the Levant, um, that wonderful town of Jordan, the city of Jordan that was theoretically destroyed by the Israelites when they blew the, the, uh, the Jer trumpets and the, Jericho. Uh, and Jericho, I mean, I said Jordan, I meant Jericho. Uh, when they blew their trumpets and the walls came tumbling down, Jericho may be uh, the oldest continually occupied or pretty much continually occupied city in the world. That was Canaanite. They, the Canaanites may have inherited DNA from the mysterious sea peoples, too, uh, who uh, brought about the end of the uh, the the, uh, the Bronze Age. So it's it's really tough to know. Uh, it, it doesn't seem as though the biblical account can be justified by modern DNA and everything else. And, um, or archaeology. Yeah, or theology. Yeah. All we can do is just watch it. I mean, how could how could the good God, Yahweh, who, or, or Elohim, who was a... Uh, uh, a Canaanite God, how could he say, thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments to Moses? And then a couple of pages later say, now go kill all the Canaanites, men, women, and children, and animals, everybody. Um, <laughs> right. It's just hard to, it's hard to fathom. It really is. Yeah, there's a lot of that. It, it seems like a, the, the God of the Old Testament sort of kept some Canaanites and Philistines always in reserve to, to yeah. whenever, yeah. whenever the Israelites uh, disappointed him, which they did plenty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and those, you know, those, uh, uh, the Phoenicians, uh, you know, along the Levant and everything could very well have been the first people to discover North America too. I mean, uh, there's some evidence that they, managed to travel out the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar and wound up in America. It was a tremendously sophisticated people. I, we're, we're not, uh, we're not served very well when we're just told all about the, uh, the story that most of us have got in school. Cause it's just, it's just, as falling apart at the seams and it's, it's a shame. It really is. Yeah. No, the Bible is not a good place to get your history from. I mean, it, uh, yeah. it's, it's fine as, as a source, but it's, it's only one source. Um, yeah. All right, so let's try to get beyond sort of the sociological impacts and just get to the, if we were going to write a comic book or the religion book, um, I don't, I don't, you can pick which, which uh, pantheon you want to start with and sort of identify the major gods and sort of a little bit of their stories. And, and, 
and that would be that would be great. That'd be so much fun. Well, we, there's I know there's so many. Uh, uh, if you take, for instance, uh, some interesting crossovers, uh, a god in the Canaanite uh, pantheology uh, or pantheon rather is uh, actually a god by the name of Adonis. Who's the god of youth and beauty and desire, the son of Astarte, and the Greeks took over. The Greek mythologized him, and he became the lover of Aphrodite and Persephone, and he's linked to the planet uh, Mercury. Um, there was the goddess Anat, who was the uh, the virgin goddess of war and strife, and she was the uh, the mate or the consort of Baal, um, the god of the storm. Um, uh, Asherah is an interesting. Uh, she's the queen. She's a, a con another consort of of El, and uh, they used to celebrate <laughs> Asherah by going up. See if this rings any bells. They used to go up on a mountaintop and put a pole in the ground and get big fancy streamers of all different colors and dance around the pole in the springtime, and uh, to the goddess of of, of Asherah or Asherah, and uh, it's the, basically the beginning of our maple dance yeah. you know that came over to Europe um, the uh, the god Atar is interesting uh, he's the the morning star sometimes called the son of the morning and um, that was a name that was given to Jesus I am the morning star he said and uh, he tried to take the place of the dead Baal and uh, and he failed and here's uh, the thing of Jesus the son of the morning uh, beating death, uh, Baal's bailiwick. Uh, Dagon or Dagon is the uh, the god of fertility and and grain, and he was a, a big one that uh, the Jews were constantly told uh, they worship. You know, they worship the god the god Dagon, and of course El, who sometimes called Elion or the Most High, was the god of creation. Um, we could well we could you know keep going on and on like this, but you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, changeover. Uh, and then again, we have to go into the Old Testament and look at that the product of the, the the kids who were born, the children who were born, the Nephilim who were born to uh, uh, the sons of God and the daughters of men. They were called the Nephilim, but they were also called the heroes of old, the men of renown, which kind of takes us into the Greek pantheon. Sure does. Um, and uh, then you have to wonder, a man by the name of Enoch in the Old Testament, who has three names, one in uh, Canaan, and one in Egypt, and one in Greece. He's recognized by all three. So there is a tremendous change back and forth. Right. Yeah, there's this whole sort of uh, almost going to where modern day, I guess, Iran ends and all the way, you know, sort of, yeah. uh, uh, you know, basically the entire Mediterranean, even even some uh, of the Northwestern African uh, gods yeah. and goddesses are are the same. There was, a, I don't know who was the first, maybe Ayana was Sumerian and became Ishtar in Babylonian and Astarte in Canaanite, uh, but, all, but that may Sounds also right. be... Aphrodite, and I believe there's an African counterpart uh, as well. But at some point, I think Astarte sort of became sort of both Aphrodite and Athena, uh, or properties yeah. of both. And Isis, I think, is sort of like Athena. I mean, it, 
one sort of morphs and builds into the other, which, yeah. which is not unusual. That, 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 that's been the course of history. And it's just that our written history really begins much later. And then most yes. of our other written history is sort of going backwards, trying to, and then we find things here and there, but in languages that are, you know, largely lost to us and being subject to translations, which sometimes yeah. are mistranslations. Yeah. And, and the history before that was just oral. So, Working backwards is always difficult, especially with yeah. uh, oral traditions, which can change from town to town, especially when you go from, you know, Urak to, uh, you know, to Akka, you know, they, mm-hmm. their, their patron god might be different. But the way we read it now, it may be like not as, you know, we, we understand inherently that Athens, Athena was their patron god and somebody else was the patron god of what whatever, Corinth. Uh, mm-hmm. But but we, we seem to change that history or our interpretation of it when it's older than that. We, you know, we don't understand one's a patron god and that doesn't necessarily mean they're the king of the gods. I mean, nobody says Athena was the queen of the gods. Zeus was the king of the Greek gods because it was written. Um, you know, so I, I think the, the very fact that things are written make, makes a lot of difference. I, I guess that's why they say the pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah, give me that old-time religion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's an awful lot of crossover there, awful lot. And then, you know, we have to wonder, is it all mythology, or is there a kernel of uh, truth in it, or is there uh, a kernel of truth in it that points to previous civilizations on Earth, or perhaps uh, alien intervention in the Earth in the past? Well, I hope um, so. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's what I'm going with. I'm going, yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I, for me, it always ends with the aliens. And then, of course, the, the people say to me, well, who created the aliens? I don't know. I'm not, I'm, 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 not, I'm not eliminating divinity uh, for aliens. I'm just uh, eliminating our particular versions of, of divinity or the way it's been written for the aliens. Well, I, you know, all the study that I've done and all the writing I've done and all the research I've done, uh, I think people, uh, Scientists make a big mistake when they just automatically um, eliminate alien intervention uh, out of hand. Um, it there's just too much detail given uh, in all these ancient myths to make me think that people just made up the whole story. And uh, sometimes it, great strides forward in civilization happen so quickly that you have to say where did we get those ideas? And I just can't help but think, I'm hoping that sometime in the near future, we'll be visited by aliens who are watching us now and who say, uh, you know, we're, we're here to help. Uh, we've jumpstarted your civilization in the past. You guys need a new jumpstart. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd love to see that. Oh yeah, I think we'd all love to see that. <laughs> but the, there are yeah. other versions of how that could be, and then, and yeah. lots of Hollywood producers have come up with many different versions of, of uh, that. You know, they're always they're always bad guys out to get us in Hollywood. That's uh, for sure. Not always lately. It's a, they, I mean, even going back to Starman and ET. No, there's been plenty. Oh, well, who, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. Like, yeah. The, we're, we're we're essentially the the bad guys, and then there's then there's also ones that are more humanized where it's sort of a mixture they're, they're they're not exactly so good and not so bad either or or they may be bad to us but they have their own 
If you are from the land of famine and starvation and you are coming to another land to feed your people, you are your own hero. If you're in the if you're in the land that has the food and somebody's coming in to do it, you're defending your land. They're the villains. You're the hero. So it's yeah, a, it's yeah. all you know. It's a, it's all uh, perception. Anyway, so all right. So a lot of people conflate Sumerian with Babylonian, and that is not necessarily the case. Well, some of the geography uh, occupies the same yeah. place now and even then. Um, they are two distinct cultures and, and two distinct yep. religions. Now, Babylonia is probably the one I know the least about. All I remember is when I was like 13 playing Dungeons and Dragons, I thought this god Elric was really cool. Past that, I don't, I don't know anything about Babylonian, except I think Ishtar is the Babylonian version of sort of like your goddess of love and lust and, you know, and, yep. and, and, yeah. you know, and like poetry and things like that. Right. Well, yeah, uh, Babylon, Babylonians existed at the same uh, in the same space uh, in Mesopotamia, but they were about two to three thousand years after the Sumerians, and they kind of evolved from. But that evolution uh, was helped by a lot of mysterious people coming from a lot of different places, uh, and in Babylon, we have it kind of tough because. Much of what we know about Babylonian culture and Babylonian gods it comes from the Bible because they were contemporary with the early Israelites. Uh, as a matter of fact, we talked about the Babylonian captivity where Nebuchadnezzar came of Babylon came over and supposedly took uh, the cream of uh, Jewish uh, manhood, marched them up around the Fertile Crescent back to Babylon. Uh, one of those guys who was supposedly caught in there was uh, Daniel. And his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, we have the story in the Old Testament about he rose to the height of uh, power in Babylon by because he interpreted dreams. But of course, during Daniel's time, uh, Babylon was overcome by the Mesians, uh, by the Persians, and the Medes. Um, so the Old Testament captivity. Uh, in, in Babylon uh, was right at the end of the Babylonian uh, era before the, the Persians took over. But there's all kinds of other people who were taken away. Uh, Ezekiel was uh, taken away in that great uh, tragedy and that beautiful, beautiful pen. Uh, oh, how can I, how can I sing in a foreign land? Uh, and uh, it was just, it was just unbelievable, and Babylon was considered to be a, an impregnable city until uh, it, was, it was taken over by by the Medes and the Persians. So, you know, the famous writing on the wall took place in Nebuchadnezzar's feast, and the hand of God was, was, was theoretically seen on the wall to write the words, you have been found in the balance, and they tried in the balance and found wanting. Um, and it's... Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful story, but Babylon was also the probably the birth of what we refer to today as monotheism, because when Babylon came over and took over the Jews, uh, the Jews were really still a polytheistic people. They weren't really monotheistic yet. If you read those early Psalms, uh, you read, my God is a great God above all gods. Well, okay. monotheism doesn't recognize all gods, so the Jews were really still polytheistic. But often the Babylonian captivity is when they probably came across uh, Zarathustra or Zoroastrianism, which was really a big 
monotheistic religion. And uh, that was the religion in Babylon that had the idea of uh, the good the the good God and the bad God fighting with each other, God and the, and, and the devil. And uh, when Zoroaster or Zarathustra rather spoke uh, the words and began it, uh, that great monotheistic religion of Zarathustraism, of which, by the way, the three kings who went to, to Bethlehem at the birth of Jesus were probably Zoroastrian scholars. Uh, they probably worshipped in this way because they were, it was it was Babylon was known for its worship of the night sky and and the cosmos. So very probably uh, the Jews got monotheism not from their own prophets and the theology of their own prophets, but very probably probably from that Babylonian captivity when they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt Jerusalem. Um, they were solidly monotheistic, and it probably happened because they came under the influence of the Babylonian religions. It's funny, even though as you say it, though it's not exactly monotheistic. There's a there's a there's a god and there's oh, a devil. Yeah. I mean, it's it's dualistic. Uh, but uh, yeah. but I understand yeah. what you're saying. There's only one good god. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, no, they, I, they they get away from that by saying there's only one god, but he created a lesser god, and that god became bad. He was so he's not really a god. You know? Yeah, yeah. there's all kinds of theological double speak involved. Yeah, at some point someone's going to teach me, and, and I don't mean, I, and I actually literally mean that uh, about Akhenaten and and the the story that there may have been monotheism in the, in uh, Egypt and and, and the alternate oh. Moses story, etc. But uh, yeah, that's right. I right. mean, I would argue that none of us have ever been monotheistic, at least not in in. in I mean. You know, once once you have a god and a devil, you've already thrown that out the window. And then, what the heck are angels? I mean, if they're if they have yeah. special powers and they're immortal, <laughs> I mean, sort of sounds yeah. like gods to me. But anyway, that is we're getting away from from. I mean, I could talk about this stuff, you know, literally forever. Oh, sure, sure. But sure. like, so so who are the uh, who are the main Babylonian gods? They, they were not part of the Zoroastrian. Uh, uh, I'll just call it uh, religion. Well, you know, there, there were many, and to be honest, I'm not going to be able to help you out too much right there, because it's been so long since I've written about all these, and sometimes <laughs> they all get jumbled together, and uh, and I don't want to give you any disinformation, so I guess I'm going to have to say, let's come back, and uh, after I have a chance to brush up and see what I wrote and forgot, <laughs> we'll have another show on Babylonian gods. Accepted. Offer accepted. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so we have our Canaanites. Now, is, is it true that, the, the, am I right that the, all of the Canaanites looked sort of like monstrous, like like sort of like Chimera, or was that just Baal? Well, a lot of them did look that way, but uh, uh, then again, the images we have of a lot of them came from uh, early Jewish, you might want to even call it propaganda. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they wanted to make the, the enemy's gods look terrible. It was the same thing that happened during World War II when uh, we were fighting Japan and the newspapers would run these, they would show these gargoyles up on top and they say, this is what Japanese gods look like, these evil guys. Well, they don't, you know, I mean, we were just trying to make Japanese religion look bad because they were the enemy. And I'm sure that the Jews did a lot of that in Canaan too. Oh, so put, so Baal actually just looks like a dude that he's been made to look like a goat. So like, so well, yeah, like how Baphomet and Satan have sort of taken well, on it's, that. It's pretty bad because Baal, uh, uh, he was, uh, you know, definitely the god to whom they sacrificed innocent children, and it was horrifying uh, throwing live 
babies into the god um, into the fires of Baal to be consumed. That was pretty terrible. Um, a couple of days ago, I wanted to just clear my head a little bit, so I turned on a uh, uh, YouTube clip of, uh, of Mendelssohn's uh, Elijah, and uh, it's a wonderful piece of music. It tells the story of the great battle between Elijah and the gods of Baal up on the mountain, and uh, three times uh, God was, uh, uh, Elijah, uh, the, the, the prophets of Baal called upon God, the wind and the storm and the, all that kind of stuff, and, and the fires and everything else, and three times Elijah called upon the God of the Israelites, and uh, finally uh, Elijah prevailed, and Mendelssohn tells the story beautifully in his oratorio, Elijah. But of course, that kind of thing comes right out of the Old Testament, and boy, they they did make those gods look terrible, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, literally, they, they look like scary versions of where the wild things were, which were scary enough for kids, but yeah, yeah, you know, like basically, they make them look like how we think of you know demons now, and you know, again, Baphomet and then images of Satan, just sure. you know, absent the the red and the you know. And the, you know all, all sorts of you know scary monster animal yeah <laughs> you know you know animal right. gods oh, basically yeah, terrible well you know Satan himself uh, uh, in in Christianity I mean we we've had visions of Satan or satanic stuff you know that all dark and fiery and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff and we just it's just natural human nature I guess we always want to make the bad guys look like bad guys oh yeah well that's been very effective propaganda too because if you're oh, yeah. i mean yeah. if, if 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 it is correct and by the way i'm not sure where you know if it is because it seems to be one of those things that you know took a lot of time to get there but if lucifer in fact turned into satan lucifer was also the morning star uh that's right and and that's lucifer right. the bright one you know the the, the, yeah, the, and, the beautiful said, one. yes the bible said that lucifer was the most beautiful created being ever by god right. but he fell from grace yes and, uh, he was on the right hand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not not even in those Enochian books is, is Lucifer the leader of the bad guys. I'm not. I'm not even sure he was listed in those in those uh, seven lieutenants. I, I don't think yeah. he made that list. Uh, uh, I I don't even know. I, I I'm, I'm not sure. No. I mean, I think I think uh, I think Azazel was the top dog leader, and there was a Belial, which is interesting because I I. I also watched a YouTube video, and this was on the the Book of King Og, which is, yeah. as it turns out, is a book of a work of fiction. But the guy who was talking about it was talking about it, and he and he's in the in the ministry as well. Uh, but he was talking about it as if it was real. Um, yeah. Now this is when it first came out, and people, you know, it wasn't all real. That's not particularly important. But he indicated that that Baal or Baal became Baal, who also became Belial and Beelzebub. Yeah. He said they're all the same. Yeah, that's right. I think so. Yeah, um, it's interesting too that when we start, you know, talking about these, the um, we're influenced in ways that we don't even understand by paintings that we have seen and forgotten, or pictures that we have seen and forgotten. Uh, the two places in the Old Testament that, if they are interpreted in one way, tell the story of how Lucifer fell. Uh, the story of, uh, it's, it's in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of Isaiah and um, if you translate those together it tells the story of how Lucifer was the, the son of the morning and the bright morning star and the most beautiful created being and he was told uh, to uh, 
he, he wanted to be like God, according to the book of Isaiah. He, the five I am's or I wills. I will ascend to heaven. I will be like God. And for that, he was thrown off. Now, if you put that together with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, you can create a theology that says that um, God had a problem when Lucifer rebelled against him. God could have just zapped him because God can do anything. But then all the rest of the angels of heaven would have served God out of fear from then on rather than out of love. And God had to show what could happen. So he blasted off the planet Earth and said, you're going to be transferred down there to Earth and you can do whatever, and Earth is going to become a test tube, uh, a trial site where all the angels of heaven can look down and see what happens when people live in rebellion of God. And so our history is to teach Lucifer and the third of the angels that fell and became demons, uh, to teach them what happens when people don't follow God. So we're, according to that theology, we're, teaching by bad example. Right, yeah, there, there are two things in that. One, that's a, that's basically exactly the Anunnaki version, uh, yeah. just with different <laughs> pronouns or proper nouns. Two, right. we're, we're not here to serve God. We're, we're here to teach Lucifer how to behave properly by watching, by by doing what we don't do. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. The, the Muslims have a totally different take on that. Uh, Christians say and Jews say that uh, Lucifer became Satan or Satan, or the evil one, because he wanted to be like God. He, he loved himself more than he loved God. Muslims have a different take on it. Uh, Iblis, who is the, uh, the Muslim devil, uh, he worshipped God and loved God so much that when God created man, he, uh, he said, uh, now you've got to worship man because I have made him greater than the angels. And Lucifer said, I can't worship man, I can't bow down to man because I love God too much. And God said, well, you can't have that. So he kicked Lucifer out of heaven. And Lucifer still loved God to the end. And he was, um, you know, how did he remember his beloved? How did he remember God for the rest of eternity? By the last words that God said to him. And the last words that God said to him were, go to hell. <laughs> Yeah, well, so so poor Iblis is, yeah. is is just jealous. Yeah, well, he's he's yeah, he just loves God too much that so he can't worship man, and uh, it's it's a different take, same story, different different take on it. It, it sure it, it certainly is. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I, I don't even yeah. know what to do with all of that information. So if we're going, so this actually is gonna is gonna strangely enough becomes its own decent transition, but actually. I'm not going to take advantage of that transition. I'm going to take go back a little bit to to Babylon because I read something today, and I don't know if it's correct or not. So I'm, I'm going to because I I you earlier mentioned to me ancient origins, and and I you know I get that page as well, and so there's stuff on there, and some of it is you know is some are speculation, some of it is sort of fan fiction, and you know, and then some of it has you know bits and pieces of everything. Anyway, so. What they said is that Babylon was founded by Abraham, and it may or may not have been the same Abraham that, that sort of had the Cain-like qualities of being able to teach all of these things, being one of those ancient ones who seemed to be pre-Diluvian 
and and taught them. Now, I don't know if it's the same Abraham or not, or just a namesake. It may not even huh. matter. But uh, is there anything to that? Is there any Babylon legend where someone named Abraham founded Babylon and taught them agriculture and poetry and art? You're you're way ahead of me on this one. I've never heard that before. Uh, I missed the article in Ancient Origins, I guess. No, I had never heard that before. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to to read some more about it because I I don't know where to go with it. Now, I think I've read it once before, but it's not one of those things I see time and time again. And to be frank, I can't tell you for sure that it's ancient origins because I I, I sort of get links to lots of different places. You know, once you get one, you start getting things from everyone. But but I think it was ancient. Anyway, it it doesn't matter because there's also someone that's always writing on the you know, the uh, Anunnaki uh, myths, but yeah. tying them into, you know, all others, basically, and, and saying that it's, that it's fact. But uh, one of the interesting things, you, you told me that the Lilith is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, but Lilith might be Sumerian and Babylonian. There was like a Lilu, Lilitu uh, yes. in that, yeah. and, you know, which, yeah. is, which is sort of like what she became after God, you know, after uh, God banished her from from. Adam, basically sort of like a harpy succubus. Basically, she steals babies. Basically, yeah. she, she takes babies. Uh, she made some deal with angels who were pursuing her, which is a has its own series of questions uh, too as well. But apparently, that's why some people wear the amulets of those three angels around their necks, like pregnant women, uh, uh-huh. to keep Lilith away. She, because the deal she made is, if you leave me alone, despite what God told you to do, I won't bother any babies that are protected by you. So, so something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, there's a whole there's a whole Hebrew mythology about Lilith that uh, uh, basically basically the the story says that she was to be Adam's first wife, and uh, she was not subservient like Eve was, and she wanted things her way. Literally, right. <laughs> if yeah. you want to translate the Hebrew right, it basically it said Lilith wanted to be on top. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not really sure where the problem is, but okay. <laughs> yeah, and that was why um, that was why she was cast out, and another woman was made this time from uh, Adam's rib, uh, so she would be subservient to him. Mm. And that was the beginning. So if you want to go to any of the uh, the Lilith Fair stuff going on today. You know, these these days, um, you'll find a very bunch of strong women who have rediscovered Lilith, and uh, I, I think it's I think it's fun. Yeah, there's a yeah a lot of different versions of Lilith, but if the origins might have been in this sort of like this harpy witch like character who would steal babies, which I'm sure was basically a metaphor for you know why there's so much uh, infant mortality and so many yeah. women died of yeah. pregnancy back then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they had to give it a, you know, give, give a, a, a story about it or, and, and whether it was to explain it or just to say, Hey, be careful when you're pregnant, because like, let's not forget that women then were 12, uh, you know, yeah. they weren't, yeah. you know, you weren't 22 or 32 or even 42. You were 12, right. you know, yeah. if you were 14 and didn't have three kids already, you, you, you had yeah. probably failed your family. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or at least tried. Um, anyway, but yeah, there was a, a Lilu and a Lilitu, and they were goddesses or demons. And, and sometimes it's difficult to tell the difference between you know, what's a god and a demon. And of course, we're putting English words on languages that were not English. <laughs> they predate sure, English, sure. Uh, and they might not be exactly the right translation. So. Uh, so, listen, I try every show not to babble about Lilith. In fact, I have a whole show on Lilith. I keep 
kicking to the future because I'm like, Ugh, I'm always babbling about Lilith. And, and how can I put this show on? Because then it's going to be two hours of babbling about Lilith. Uh, as opposed to, and, and here I go again. So I, I, I apologize once again to Luke Ironside, Luke Michael Ironside, uh, because your show's being cooked. But I always told him it, it would anyway because it's uh, uh, he, he's also tied to that that conference, the, the film. And I think it used to be oh, anthropology. Yeah. It's anthropology. Anthrosophy, I think they call yeah. it now a conference. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to promote that conference, I, I, that's my excuse for kicking it down the can. There but, you go. There but, you I, go. but I have another show with him coming up before then, too, so it's really a lie. It's just an excuse. Here I am bearing my... Well, I'm confessing to a, a, a member of a, a clergy, so it's, it's just between us. No one's listening. All right, so I will take the transition now just because that Abraham Babylon story may just be a, that, just a story. Um, so... Talking about aliens, and so last week I listened to you on Earth Ancients. Everyone here knows I listen to Earth Ancients. I've never been afraid to talk about other podcasts here. Plus, they're a hundred times bigger than I am. Um, So it'd be silly for me to pretend not to. Uh, And that may be where I first became acquainted with you, period. Um, And Cliff's been on the show, very kind. He was on, uh, I think, episode 50, which was uh, very nice of him to do. He certainly didn't need to be on my little show. Um, Well, Cliff Cliff was the one who uh, uh, put me in touch with uh, Ancient Origins years ago, too. When I began to write for them, it was because Cliff introduced me to uh, the editor there. Yeah, he's a generous soul. And... The, the show that you were on was, you know, part of it was going to be talking about First Contact. But he never quite got around to First Contact. Maybe because your time was limited. Maybe because he got uh, sidetracked on, on, you know, something else. But so I'm like, this is great. Uh, I'm like, you know, I was going to listen to that that episode and sort of borrow some from it and maybe revisit some of it and amplify it. But, it does, but instead, I, I have like sort of the exclusive, the first thing. What does Reverend Jim Willis, after 40 years in the ministry and many years after that of study and being clearly very open-minded, call it shamanic, if you will, you know, considering the possibility of, of, of uh, pre-Diluvian ancient civilizations, uh, uh, considering the possibility of aliens, what would your first contact protocols be? You know, to be perfectly honest, um, and this, of course, is my own strictly opinion. I'm not sure it would make one bit of difference because over the years I've come to, to really believe that uh, contact with aliens, it, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And I almost believe sooner rather than later. Uh, I spent a lot of my time as a fundamentalist minister looking for the return of Jesus. Now I'm looking for the return of the aliens. But uh, I, I really have come to believe that the, the universe, statistically, it's just full of life. Now, of course, when we had the Fermi complex, uh, the Fermi uh, paradox, the Fermi paradox, uh, if life is out there, where is it? Well, I think we're seeing more and more of it. But there's only two places that aliens can come from, and that's from other places in this dimension, in this cosmos, or from another dimension. If they come to us from this uh, cosmos in, let's call them nuts and bolts spacecraft, um, to be honest, I, I really think that if that ever happens, they would be so far advanced from us and they would have so much uh, more experience at first contact situations uh, 
that I think anything that we decide to do or not do uh, wouldn't make any difference. I think they would take over. And any thoughts we have would be gone. Uh, I don't think they would need to pay much attention to us. I, I honestly have come to believe that many of the sightings that we're seeing now, and we're seeing more of them all the time, are a sign that things are getting closer. Uh, and we're, we are being watched. And we are being judged. Uh, and uh, we can stand up, tell them we insist on this and that, and I think they would be so far advanced from us that they would say, well, uh, you don't understand. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're doing that. I, think that you're, yeah. I think that you're right. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, it really doesn't matter what our first contact protocols yeah. are. Yeah. I mean, it's not a bad idea to to come up with some, to have some sort yeah. of procedure, yeah. maybe for our own yeah. psyche, but the, the, we are so far beneath them. It, it doesn't yeah. matter whether we're waving white flags, coming out with guns ablaze. It, sure. it doesn't matter, whatever sure. it is. No, no, it doesn't matter. And, and, you know, the other scenario would be that they don't come from this cosmos, that they come from a different dimension. And this protocol would be the same. They would be so far different than us that uh, we would have to go along. To be honest, I think more of the problem is, uh, can we have a first contact without being ashamed of how humans are going to act? Mm-hmm. Because we have uh, basically three different groups of humans in the world right now. There's a, a group of, of uh, mostly conservative religious types, I'm sure, who would simply not believe that there was an alien contact. They would say it's a conspiracy. Someone is, some world government or something is faking the whole thing. Or saying. I mean, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, people say we never landed on the moon or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, obviously, we are reaching out uh, on Voyager when Carl Sagan said along the famous gold record, he was basically saying, this is who we are in all those different languages and sounds of earth and music and all that kind of stuff. He was basically saying, howdy. Uh, and that, that has to stand for, for, for something I would think. And there, but there would be some people who would just say, no, it, it's a, it's a conspiracy. I don't believe it. Uh, the earth is flat. We didn't go to the moon and there is no uh, alien thing as a world government is trying to fool us. There's another group of people who would be jumping right in and uh, trying to take power from it. Uh, a lot of our political leaders look at Project Blue Book. It went on for how long? Okay. And they, they kept it quiet. Why? Because they didn't want to give up the power they had. Knowledge is power. And uh, we'd have to worry about them just as much. And then there's a vast majority, probably in the middle, that would say, uh, well, let's just talk about it a little more. You know, let's form a committee. Right. <laughs> and talk. And, let's worry and about so, the pronouns. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would think more than anything else, we have to, we don't have to really worry about how the, the aliens would act. I think they're going to be so far above us that we just can't even do anything. I think we have to worry about how we're going to act. And that's what scares me more than anything else. Yeah. Uh, the idea, The idea of... You go out in the woods and you see a Bigfoot, and your first inclination is to shoot it. Uh, I think it would be the same thing with aliens. You know, aliens land, draw the gun, fire at them. You know, right. I just uh, that would that would terrify me it really because I don't have a whole lot of faith in the human race when it comes to uh, acting because I think human human beings tend to act on what they want to believe rather than what actually is. And I know that we've had, we've seen so many movies like, you know, uh, you know, blowing away the aliens ever since Flash Gordon. You know, all aliens are bad, and even uh, Stephen Hawking suggested something like that. But 
Uh, no, I think I, I'm not worried about it personally. I, I know that there are a lot of people who are. They say, well, they may want to come here to mine our resources. I don't know because there's more resources out there in the universe that they certainly need from this planet. Why go through the trouble? Yeah, the, there's, a, there's $40 trillion asteroids, and I, I only use yeah. that number because I read an article this week that NASA is thinking about abandoning the mission to get that 40 or $30 trillion yeah. asteroid. Yeah. Um, which I actually think is a terrible idea. I don't care what the reason is. I think they should actually try to do that for so many reasons that are not important to this show. But on Garden yeah. Views, we talk about things like this or, or will eventually. Um, but uh, I don't know. The world of science fiction gives us plenty of different scenarios. One is your Star Trek one where you, you meet the yeah. Vulcans, but the Vulcans are, you know, probably three or four generations of technology ahead or, you know, whatever, let's say 200 yeah. years ahead. So it's not... Yeah that giant disparity it's it's uh, you know then you have your babylon 5 first contact not too terribly different you know maybe a thousand or two thousand years difference in technology but the culture got it so wrong that that for the oh, the mimbari that's what they were called yep. that, yep. that their opening of peace their white flag is that they open their gun ports to show you what they've got of course the humans think open the gun ports means open fire so yeah. so you know well, and, and then there's and then there's carl sagan's uh, contact which says that uh, it, it's not our protocols it's their protocols they have that's protocols. right so i don't know it's uh, it's it certainly is going to be interesting i hope i live to see it i really do Right. Our white flag might be the equivalent of of a red flag to a bull to them. So sure, you know sure, we we we, sure. we don't know that. So you know I don't know. It, it is interesting. I think you're right. We should probably just stand there, hand hands shown on our on our laps, and just don't don't make any southern movements whatsoever. Let <laughs> let, let them let them let them dictate the, the flow. That I agree with don't, the pros. Don't embarrass the family, but I'm I'm sure that uh, an alien. Uh, civilization that advanced to get here and to actually contact with us. I'm sure they would have been through this so many times that they know exactly what's going to happen. And we're we're not their first rodeo. So they, yeah. yeah. Now imagine that, I guess the, the nightmare scenario, well, there's a couple. One is that it's the Vul it's not the Vulcans, it's the Klingons. They're there for conquest. Yeah. The old Klingons, <laughs> not the new Klingons. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> The, 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 uh, you know, so that, that's one nightmare scenario. I guess the other one is that, you know, we are truly grasshoppers before them and, and they're just like, yeah, bugs, insects, yeah, and, don't care. And, you know, you, you tend to, uh, invest your enemy with your own shortcomings that your enemy is going to act the way you are. And to be honest, whenever we have gone into a foreign country and in our expansion from Europe to here or anywhere else, it's almost always been behind an invading army. That, that's our nature. So we figure they're going to be the same way. Sure. I think I think any civilization that can invent a technology that can actually take you between star systems, um, if they were that way and if that was their nature, they would have destroyed themselves long before. They have. I don't. I don't really worry about us um, taking our own shortcomings out into the cosmos because I think the way it looks right now, we're going to destroy ourselves before we do that. Yeah. I guess the only scenario where it would be sort of awkward is that somehow we encounter a civilization that's sort of equal to ours or a little bit ahead of ours in times of in terms of technology. And it is, in fact, their first experience with first contact as well of ours, which that would that seems to be what however you can make astronomical exponentially uh, mathematically slimmer. Uh, yeah. Until until we break the the, uh, the speed of sound, the speed of light. I don't think that's going to happen, but who knows? You know, uh, 
it, it's a pretty big jump to get to, to that kind of technology. So, so your first uh, contact is don't worry, they're they're going to dictate the terms. If you try and dictate the terms, that that's basically a fool's errand. I basically agree with yeah. you on that. Um, but and there's uh, nothing there's nothing we can do about it. Even if they did want to destroy us, how are you going to fight against the technology that can actually get here from a whole different solar system? Right. They, people say, we'll shoot nukes at them. Well, the, the nukes will not leave our atmosphere. They won't even, they, they won't, yeah. I mean, far before yeah. where the atmosphere actually ends, well, their, their flights yeah. will end. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's fine. And we will, folks out there, I, I will have other guests in the future uh, between this show and Garden Views, we will talk about first protocol so you'll def- get different uh, opinions on them and just decide for yourselves what, what you think um, but I, I thank you so much I uh, you know uh, I absolutely accept your offer to come back again on uh, oh thank you Jeff uh, it's always a, always a pleasure to talk with you it always is Jeff likewise likewise so um, I guess next time we'll, we'll be Babylonian and maybe we'll maybe we'll throw in uh, maybe we'll go further east maybe go Indian as well so, wow yeah, terrific yeah. Uh, you know I have been fascinated by uh, Indian culture uh, I used to teach Hinduism but uh, in my new book uh, Wizard the Wizard in the Wood uh, when I did the audio book uh, I wanted some uh, some really good music for it and I got together with a friend of mine from India. I say he's a friend of mine. We've never met personally. Cyber friends. Uh, but we're, yeah, we're, and he's a wonderful musician, Ajit Padmanabh. And uh, I've used his music in a lot of uh, videos that we put up on my YouTube link. And uh, just to talk to him, he's just like a breath of fresh air. His, his, uh, his worldview and his total, you know, total commitment to, uh, uh, Hindu uh, theology and Hinduism and this basically Hinduism, it's, it's wonderful. I'd love to meet him. I'd love to have him on and, and talk about that if he, if he's willing. But, uh, oh. but, you know, before the, but yeah, I mean, if you feel comfortable with it, that would be swell. You don't have sure. to answer this oh, yeah. on the air. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Please tell everyone where they can find your work, how they can support you, what, you know, what books you have out there, what are coming out, your YouTube channel. Everything in the world oh. of Reverend Jim Willis where they can help you out and follow you and help themselves. Well, the easiest way is just to go right to uh, www.jimwillis.net um, and uh, you'll find a, a link there to my Facebook page and you'll find a link to my YouTube page. And uh, on the YouTube page, there's all kinds of the videos that we've been putting out. I just had to recently back out of a tour to Turkey that was supposed to take place in October. And uh, we decided to do a virtual tour. So we put up uh, six so far, one more to go, seven um, YouTube videos on different aspects of ancient Anatolia that might, people might find interesting. They're all about six to eight minutes apiece. Oh, yeah. That's and, lovely. Uh, so in, in, anyway, uh, jimwillis.net, and you can find everything you want to know from there, I'm sure. Excellent. And I, I really, folks, I, I seriously recommend Censoring God. It is an easy read. That's well worthwhile. Uh, it's sort of like almost like two books in one, uh, even though it's only like 300 pages. It's it's uh, some people just have a gift with wordsmithing. Um, I also read and by this in this case, censoring God. I read the actual pages. I, I read turn yeah. pages. The other book I read was an audible book. It was uh, something about your journeys in the Akashic Record or in, oh, yeah. in, in some, yeah. so that was also that was that was fun. That was a, was a little hippy dippy stuff. That was fun. The, the spiritual uh, stuff. Yeah, the uh, quantum Akashic field. Yeah, a, guide, a guidebook. 
yeah, Quantum Akashic Field, uh, a guide for out-of-body travel. And, and the religion book, I keep it. I keep it on my desk here, just for quick reference for for everything. It is my starting place for almost all questions I have. I I look to see, and it's and it's alphabetical, folks. It's actually alphabetical, so it it, it makes it so easy for you. Um, all right. Thanks so much for being on the show. We'll be in touch. We'll schedule another date. And if and if that gentleman on Hinduism is willing to come on the show, I would love to 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 have him come on as well. That'd be great. Um, I'll talk to him, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you. You, you have no idea. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. All right, folks. Uh, we wish Jim well, and we hope that you will rate, review, and refer the show. And you'll hear from us again next week in the Garden of Doom. Oh, oh, oh.